Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Daily Friend Wrap. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, today joined by Mr. Marius Ruet. Let's get into the news of today. Our first story is going to be about the ANC and Qaeda deployment. Our second story is going to be a little bit about how Saudi Arabia is changing both itself and the world. And the third one is about how load shedding is changing around the country. So, our first story is, and this is one of those stories that makes my eyes sort of almost fall out of my head when I read it. Uh, the Minister for Public Service and Administration, Paolo Kiviet, has denied that Qaeda deployment is, or ever was, a government policy. Uh, the DA spokesperson on this portfolio asked a question in Parliament um, whether it remains the policy position of government to ensure control of the levers of state by appointing cadres from a particular political organization over prioritizing a public service. This is in line with what the Zondo Commission, of course, found with regards to its investigation into how state capture happened, um, is that cadres appointment played a very big role. Um, he, uh, uh, Schreiber also went on to ask whether the government plans to abolish the preference of deploying cadres in public service over prioritizing a professional public service. The minister responded, The government does not have and has never had a policy of cadre deployment. Employment in the public service operates on a merit-based recruitment and selection system, rendering the concept of cadre deployment inapplicable for filing positions, filling positions. rather. Um, this is a little bit awkward because it flies in face of things the ANC is currently doing, like fighting court battles to show that uh, cadre deployment is in fact legal, and also denying uh, the public access to the minutes of the cadre deployment committee meetings. Uh, Marius, what, what is this? Is this some kind of campaigning thing? Do they expect people to believe this? Uh, this yeah, is the biggest lie I've seen from the government in ages. It's one of those things where people uh, will tell organizations such as our own that uh, we, um, you know, the scaremongering or fearmongering over things like the National Democratic Revolution, you know, the ultimate goal being that South Africa becomes a socialist or communist state. And in every second or third speech of a prominent ANC or government minister, they'll talk about how, you know, they're fighting for the National Democratic Revolution and, you know, that's all part of uh, all government's policies and so on. But just what's been... Uh, uh, these comments from the minister, it uh, makes me think of a quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I'm not sure if I said it right, but the guy who wrote the Gulag Archipelago, I think. Uh, he said, we know that they are lying. They know that they know that they are lying. They even know that we know they are lying. We also know that we know they are lying too. They of course know that we certainly know they know we know they are lying too as well. They are still lying. In our country, the lies become not just moral category, but the pillar industry of this country. And he was obviously talking about the Soviet Union at the time. Uh, you know, I'm not sure when he made that uh, comment. But obviously, in the uh, middle of the last century somewhere. But I think it's definitely something. Uh, I think uh, that that quote would not be too um, out of place in uh, modern day South Africa. I don't think. And uh, you know, as you say, the the with cadre deployments, um, the ANC hasn't has never hidden that it's a policy of it. I mean, that's a lot of uh, problems in South Africa can be drawn back to the 1997 They regularly defend it in public. Exactly. In fact, Cyril Ramaphosa once described it as an additional layer of accountability in government, which is complete exactly. madness, but <laughs> I can't believe the minister thinks that she could get away with this lie. No, but I mean, I think the ANC got so used to getting away with these kinds of lies. And, you know, there's going to be no real pushback against this. Obviously, uh, the people make a noise in the media, but people forget about it again. And, you know, I mean, the, the ANC, I mean, they love lying. I mean, I'm just off the top of my head. I can think of Silva Ramaphosa. He was recently talking and he said that uh, South Africa is uh, not as advanced as where it could be. 
because of apartheid, which is all maybe true, but the ANC has also been in charge for 30 years. As our colleague Chris Hutton pointed out, in uh, 1994, manufacturing made up over 20% of South Africa's GDP. Today, it's about 13 or 12%. If we're still at 20%, imagine the jobs and the value that'd be added uh, to this country. Uh, also with uh, Fakila Mbalula, uh, he said after South Africa won the World Cup, that the ANC, uh, that the reason for, part of the reason for the Springboks uh, win was because the ANC had got rid of the quota system, which is all complete nonsense. And you know, it's, it's lying with, you know, set with a straight face and it's, and yeah. Well, Fakila Mbalula recently admitted that he was outraged at Zuma partly because the <laughs> ANC had lied on his behalf. It's just, it, there comes a point when, you know, uh, it, there's so little credibility like, that you, you kind of almost, it's almost funny. But mm. uh, anyway. Well, you have to laugh, otherwise you'll cry. Indeed. I do think that the reason that this uh, line is being pushed out now is because Cater Deployment has gotten a bad name it's finally gotten into the public conscience and i think it's actually beginning to eat away at the anc's support which is i suspect now they're going to shift to a policy of claiming that now oh, it's not such a big deal what is it nah, yeah. it's not important it's not what are you talking about um and uh, we'll see how that plays out i suspect however you know as you know as we say they've been going on about catered appointment for literally decades uh this is going to be a difficult sell to the population but anyway Okay, let's move on to our next story, and this is an interesting one from abroad, and that is the changing nature of the country Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is going to be opening its first ever alcohol store. The country has had some of the most strict um, uh, religiously based uh, laws in the world um, for a very long time, um, until relatively recently, only a few years ago, women, for example, were not allowed to drive. Uh, there are there were very serious restrictions on dress and behavior and all that sort of stuff in Saudi Arabia and under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman that has begun to change the importance of the religious police has been decreased and now um, as part of efforts to combat uh, smuggling by um, foreign diplomats into Saudi Arabia of alcohol uh, there's going to be a shop open that sells alcohol for the first time in the country's history However, it's got very strict uh, conditions. Um, only Western diplomats from countries where alcohol is legal are allowed to purchase alcohol from the store. Um, no one under the age of 21 is allowed. Uh, no uh, guests or unaccompanied visitors are allowed to, to, to come to the, the, the shop on your behalf if you're a diplomat. They also don't allow you to film or take out your cell phone while in said shop. Um, but apparently this is because a lot of these diplomats were actually smuggling in alcohol to sell on the black market uh, from, from Western countries. So that's part of this effort. But a lot of uh, commentators have seen this as sort of the thin end of the wedge, that Mohammed bin Salman, in line with a lot of his other reforms, is looking to actually kind of move Saudi Arabia away from its previous uh, uh, way of doing things. Now, this is at the same time accompanied by the fact that Mohammed bin Salman is perhaps the most powerful monarch in Saudi's history. He rules with fewer checks on him than even previous Saudi monarchs. And, of course, there's no democracy. Saudi Arabia, um, uh, they regularly still execute people or imprison people for doing something as simple as liking a tweet that is critical of the government. In Saudi Arabia, you can be thrown in prison. Um, but, Maurice, you've, you've also taken a note of, of the changes in Saudi Arabia and that they are making huge investments into sport all over the world. Yeah, it's quite interesting. I think a lot of it is this kind of sports washing. Uh, you know, they get uh, people can forget about all the human rights abuses and so on if uh, they're getting you know good sport coming from the place. 
you know, Saudi Arabia's invested. Uh, they bought uh, uh, Newcastle United in the English Premier League. Uh, there was the Live Golf competition, which was must, uh, from what I can understand, caused the split uh, within the golf world. And eventually, you know, there was kind of a um, uh, people found a, a way to work together. And now there's golf tournaments in Saudi Arabia. You know, they got that football uh, tournament, uh, football league, with big names like people like Cristiano Ronaldo playing in there. They're also thinking of. Uh, uh, buying a stake in the Indian Premier League, the Indian Cricket Tournament. Uh, from what I was reading, they apparently in talks to buy a stake worth up to $5 billion, billion. And also, I remember in last year's IPL, uh, there was lots of ads for uh, for people to, uh, encouraging people to go visit Saudi Arabia. We're just looking now, Saudi Arabia's uh, visa policy now has also changed. And nearly everybody from the West and Europe and North America and actually South Africa as well, uh, can get a visa on arrival in Saudi Arabia. So they're obviously really trying to encourage tourism and people to come there. But it's all, as I said, it's all kind of um, a sports washing or whitewashing because we know Saudi Arabia has still got, uh, it's not exactly a democracy. As you say, the current monarch is probably the most powerful monarch in uh, the history of uh, Saudi Arabia. Women still don't have equal rights and it's uh, still not a place I don't think you know, uh, anybody who's like us, who's a uh, liberal and likes things like democracy and free speech and whatever, you would probably be that comfortable with going to. So, but it's, I mean, it's something that's happened around the world. People turn a blind eye to these kinds of things. We know Saudi Arabia is one of uh, the US's uh, biggest uh, allies in the Middle East. And, you know, they're not exactly democracy. They're not exactly, you know, I mean, you could probably say Iran's, uh, I mean, you would probably know more than I would, Nick, but I'm sure Iran's more of a democracy if you get down to the nuts and bolts in Saudi Arabia. And Iran is obviously uh, like a sworn enemy of the US, and I think it's the feelings mutual. While Saudi Arabia, uh, even with all what's been, what goes on in that country, the US supports them. And I think uh, from also what I understand, a lot of the 9-11 bombers uh, were um, sponsored by kind of Saudi Arabian groups. And... Uh, I'm open to correct him. I think Osama bin Laden himself was a Saudi Arabian. Yeah, he was a Saudi Arabian whose family was originally from Yemen, um, but had become Saudi citizens. Um, actually, 9-11 was, uh, and this is far too long of a discussion to get into now, but 9-11 was, uh, was, I think many people have suggested, the moment at which Saudi actually began to change its policy towards the religious establishment, which since uh, 1975 had essentially been left to kind of control the country's education system and influence a lot of its laws and politics. Um, and that the, the, the Saudi monarchy, which of course is still in control of the country today, got very freaked out by the, uh, shall we say, volatility and influence of the fundamentalist um, clergy within Saudi Arabia and actually began to sort of crack down on them at that point in order to protect their own uh, power. Um, so 9-11 in that sense, because of the, or the Saudi origin of so many of them and because of their alliance with the US has... Uh, was, I think, a, a kind of a watershed moment in Saudi's history for how it began to sort of change the way that it worked. Um, I, and all of this is, of course, because Mohammed bin Salman is very worried that Saudi Arabia will one day run out of oil or that oil won't be as profitable anymore, something like that, and Saudi's economy will fall apart because oil is just such a big part of it. And I think uh, beyond just improving his image with all these sporting events, there's also an attempt here by the Saudis to kind of create new industries out of out of just spending a lot of money on them um we'll have to see whether it works i'm somewhat skeptical well the uae is trying the same i mean uh, yes. dubai is obviously a big finance center i think i think the uae is more successful doing it to be mm. honest 
because they already had. But I think they've also started. They started doing it a couple of years before the sides, I think. Also yes. uh, played a role. But just on one other thing, I think it also shows how the world's changed with Saudi Arabia investing in the IPL. Uh, I think it also shows how India's advanced and changed. I think 15 or 20 years ago, the Saudi Arabians wouldn't have dreamed of investing in an Indian cricket league, but they have now. And also, depending how it's measured, the IPL is probably the second uh, richest sports league in the world after the NFL in the United States. That's crazy. Big change from how things were even a few years ago. Um, okay, our last story. We're going to go over this one very briefly because we're almost out of time. Uh, ESCOM has announced that Clarence is going to be the South Africa's first quote-unquote smart town, which has going to be equipped or is already equipped with its own systems to self-manage its load on the national grid, which means that Clarence will simply limit the amount of electricity it uses during periods of load shedding, which if the plan works correctly, will mean that the town will not get load shed. So presumably they will have systems to deliver less electricity to your house when the system is under strain. Um, ESCOM's rolling out sort of pilot plans about this in other places. I know in some parts of Johannesburg they're doing a similar thing. I know some people who live in those areas. They are not super happy about it. They say the system hasn't worked properly. But in theory, if this could be done properly, I think this is a way of reducing the damage that load shedding does to various uh, businesses and homes and lives and all that sort of thing. Morris, what do you make of this? Yeah, I think if it works well and it can, uh, you know, maybe uh, kind of load limiting will be better than overall load shedding. It'll be better for businesses. And, you know, if it can prevent, uh, you know, stage if uh, load limiting leads to stage one rather than stage four, maybe that's a good thing. So, you know, it's a solution. It's not an ideal solution. Obviously, there are much uh, other solutions, but it's one of the solutions that we're going to have to work with at the moment. And I've some... Uh, quite pleased about this because I'm going to the uh, Clarence Beer Fest at the beginning of March and if anybody uh, uh, like me likes beer, uh, I'd recommend going there. It's probably the best beer fest in the country or the best that one that I've been to. And with that, that's a wrap. See you tomorrow.